We are strong. We are proud. We are the Latino Community Foundation of Colorado. We build vibrant communities across the state by investing in our people. By the year 2042, one of three Coloradans will be of Latino ancestry. We must create opportunity so our children, families, and elders can share their stories, feel connected, and give back at all levels of society to shape an inclusive Colorado. We are your trusted partner, your ambassador for transformative change. Somos familia. Let's create our collective power together. Connect with us at latinocfc.org. Celebrate with us on October 13, 2022, as we celebrate the 15th anniversary of the Latino Community Foundation of Colorado at the Denver Art Museum. Don't miss it. This is the Latino Community Foundation of Colorado, our story series. This series elevates and addresses issues pertinent throughout Latino communities in Colorado and beyond. We believe transformative change is possible when the collective power of the Latino community comes together. Hi, I'm Rachel Griego with the Latino Community Foundation of Colorado, LCFC, and I want to welcome you to the Our Story podcast. This episode, Guinness Somos Part 1, takes you through an exploration of the origin of the terms Hispanic Latino and the role social factors and data have played in defining our identity. Dr. G. Cristina Mora, Associate Professor of Sociology at UC Berkeley and author of Making Hispanics, shares her story of how identities shift based on geography, different life stages, and policies. So Dr. Mora, we are so happy to have you here with us. Dr. Mora is an Associate Professor of Sociology, Chicano Latino Studies, and the co-director of the Institute of Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley. She completed her BA in sociology at Cal, at Cal in 2003 and earned her PhD in sociology from Princeton University in 2009. Her research focuses on the questions of census, racial classification, immigration, racial politics. Her book, Making Hispanics, provides the first national historical account of the rise of the term Hispanic Latino and panethnic category in the United States. Dr. Mora, welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research? And also, how did you come to write the book that you did the research um, about the idea of the Hispanic Latino identity? Yeah, great. Um, so first off, I'm just so excited to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you to the Latino Community Foundation for making this a real space to discuss some of these really important topics. So like you, Rachel, I'm originally from Los Angeles. And I'm the first in my family to go to college. My parents never graduated from high school. And if you look at LA demographics in the 1980s, I grew up in an entirely Mexican neighborhood. We used to say that diversity, what part of Mexico your parents were from, like the North or the South, right? 
And so I grew up in this neighborhood and then I went off to UC Berkeley to do my undergrad. And that is the first time I encountered a broader level of diversity outside of sort of Latino being defined by Mexican food, Mexican music, Mexican people. There I saw a much more broader Central American presence and a Central American uh, ethos and language and style, right? Their form of speaking Spanish. And so I remember thinking, Okay, in LA, I was Mexicana. Here in college, I'm more Chicana slash Latina. I'm taking some Chicano studies classes and learning much more, reading Occupied America by Rudy Acuna, for example, and just learning much more about Latino history in the US. And then as I progressed in my studies, I suddenly moved to the East Coast. And I'm in a small town in the middle of New Jersey um, that just feels completely stifling many times for me. And so I take the train into New York City. And when, the new, when I get off the subway, the sights and sounds of Latinidad are radically different. No more are the rancheros, banda, norteños, mariachis, or the tacos that I knew of. It's like salsa, merengue, the sights, sounds, smells, you know, idea of Latinidad. It's just so much different, right? There's a much more Caribbean feel to it, a Cuban, a Puerto Rican, and an especially a Dominican sense of Latinidad. And I remember just having these sort of stark experiences and thinking a lot about, my God, we're so diverse. We are so diverse. What keeps us together? What makes this category actually real if people have different skin tones, ethnicities, food tastes, ways of speaking Spanish? Some don't even speak Spanish, right? How is this a category? And that then started a journey that I started to research about not only what keeps us together, how did this even start? This had to start somewhere. And the more that I delve deeply, if, if anyone sort of looks into the area of ethnic studies or higher education, we'll know that there's a real lacuna, uh, a lack of studies that bear witness to Latino contributions in the United States. There's much more Latino history and Latino stories to be told than have been published. And a lot of this mirrors the fact that Latinos are the most underrepresented population in higher education. In fact, Latinas are less than one, less than one percent of the full professoriate. And so we don't have the studies, we don't have the books that have taught us about ourselves. And so I took this really as a calling for myself. Like the story hasn't been written. What can I do? What do I have to say? And so this was sort of the beginnings of writing, making Hispanics, and really thinking about where did this term even come from? How did we be, we come to be one? You know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I hear your story, and as I talk to other Latinas across the states and even here in Colorado, the, the, the stories are so similar. I also am the first to go to college in my family. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm third generation. Um, I also went from, you know, being raised in a neighborhood where everybody was Mexican. Everybody looked like me. Everybody sounded like me. And then when I went to college, even though I went to college four hours away, it was still California, I all of a sudden looked at myself and thought, oh my God, I am so different. And I, I couldn't, I had a really hard time reconciling that because people really did see me first as who I was in terms of the color of my skin. And they also right away assumed that I was Mexican. I also moved to the East Coast. And when I went to Washington, D.C., I was shocked. I'm like, okay, 
yes, Cubans, Puerto Ricans, El Salvadorian. I mean, it was such a different mix of, of people. And my identity also shifted at that point. I all of a sudden started identifying more with being Latina as opposed to being Mexican. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it cha- you know, identity changes as your life evolves, as you have lived experiences, and also geographically as well, right, with the people and the sounds that are around you. And, and we're not unique. This is not just about Latinos. Lots of folks' identity change. Think about what it means to be Asian American, or think about when you become a mother, when you become a wife, when you go through different life stages. This is completely natural. And so, what I was trying to think of is how did this cat, but we do know something as we, as I started researching my book, I do know that there was a moment when Hispanic wasn't, there was a moment when the census never had a Hispanic question, when there were no policies, when there was, when no one had even dreamed of something called the Latino community foundation or a Latino organization. And so those are some of the questions. And, What I found as I was sort of, you know, this was a massive historical undertaking with archives in the Census Bureau, in different state departments, uh, among politically organized groups, in media, media archives. And what I found that was that if you look at America in the 1960s, you would find really a map of three different Latino worlds. One was in the Southwest, and that world was largely Mexican, Mexican-American, Chicano. That was the sort of Mexican world. Up in the Northeast, there was a real Puerto Rican world, and it had almost no connection to what was going on in the Southwest. And then in Miami, we had an emerging Cuban world. And so in the 1960s, these worlds were disparate, but there was few very important commonalities that these had for example, especially between the Mexican and the Puerto Rican peoples. One is, you know, continuously activists from these two communities continue to be aggrieved, continue to say, hey, our communities are suffering. We lack quality school. We're in segregated spaces, segregated communities. We lack good jobs. We face massive amounts of discrimination on the job. And we work really hard and we continue to be poor. Something is wrong. And in in in, um, in places like Spanish Harlem, just like in spaces like East LA, people took to the streets. This became not just what's wrong with us, but this is a social justice issue, right? And as they began to organize, they began to talk to each other in the 1960s, and they began to also say, okay, motivated really by the Black Civil Rights Movement, to say. We demand justice. We demand that the state pay attention to us. They can no longer place us in second tier school, segregate us with these redlining practices in second in segregated neighborhoods. But when they would go to, for example, the Johnson administration or some of these higher level national federal offices, the first thing that would be told is, well, aren't you guys a problem for your mayors or for your states? Are you a real national problem, number one? And the second thing they would often be told was, well, show us the data. If you're saying that poverty runs rampant, if you're saying that you face discrimination, where's the data? And there lie the crux of the problem. 
you know, at the time of the 1960s, if you were Mexican, Mexican American, Puerto Rican, Cuban, whatever you were, and you filled out the census form, the Census Bureau automatically uh, classified you as white. In fact, enumerators told you you were white, unless, of course, they thought you were black. And so right away, the large majority of the Latino population. So what would happen? Every few years, the Census Bureau would create a report, let's say poverty in America or joblessness in America. Um, and when they did, the data was almost always black and white. Latino data got lost mixed in with the data. And so very quickly, activists realized, especially the coalition of Mexican and Puerto Rican activists realized that if they were going to really push these uh, narratives forward, if they were going to demand justice, they needed data. And that, you know, place number one for this would be the Census Bureau. Now, I know we're going to talk a little bit about the census more later yes. on, but one thing to remember here, because it's an incredibly important part of the story, is that when the census sort of feels this pushback, like, you know, it suddenly thinks, hey, we're not just a scientific ex enterprise, you know, someone is accusing us that our practices are reproducing ra racial inequality, they sort of start to think, okay, what would a, a category even look like? And one of the things they, they quickly realize is if, if we make a category just for Puerto Ricans and then a category just for Mexicans, it's actually technically with the technology they had at the time was impossible. It was too statistically small for them to actually create any sort of statistical inferences. And so the, the census very quickly said, okay, well, we might be able to do that, but we'd have to group you two together. And by that time, there were a lot of conversations between Puerto Rican and Mexican activists about the way that they were similarly discriminated again, but more importantly, about the way that people south of the U.S.-Mexican border, no matter if you were from Mexico or the Dominican <laughs> Republic or, or Puerto Rico, had never really been accepted in the U.S. as American. So many might be like you, Rachel, third generation, fourth generation. And I'm sure many, uh, many folks in Colorado who yeah. are several generations away in their Latinidad will say, I still walk down the street and they ask me, where are you Where are really you from? from? <laughs> Where are you that really the, from? That's the question of the hour. It really is. I think in Colorado, the, you know, I've been living here for 13 years and it's so interesting to me because you have the South that was, you know, we have generations of families that have lived there even before it was Colorado. You have the North that has a robust growing population of, of Latinos, the North also, uh, the mountain region, you know, the, the mountain corridor is just, it's, we are the people who, who run basically that, that mountain region in terms of the tourism and, and all of the activities and things that go on there and the homes that are there. I mean, it's, it's interesting to me, but I think even in this day and age, 2021, people, that's probably one of the first or second questions that people ask, is, depending on where you're at, is, well, where are you from? And then they'll kind of wait to listen. Well, she doesn't have an accent. And um, I don't, maybe she's, I don't know, is she Indian? Is she, you know, what, what is she? Um, and I always find that I used to be taken aback a lot by that, but I, I think it's interesting that it, it is sort of the first approach. And I don't think that people mean it, mean it maliciously. I just think it's, it's a natural 
you know, inquiry now because we are so diverse. And as you know, we're not a monolith. We are so diverse. We come in so many different shades and, you know, and we have such different lived experiences as well. And I, I too remember seeing that form and going, where, where does, where's my box at? I had never been told I was white. I said, I don't understand this, but I was too embarrassed to, to say anything to anyone. So I just checked the box. Yeah, absolutely. It helps all the time. And look, when the Bureau sort of decided or was like, look, for 1960s, 1970s technology, we can't have you guys be very separate. You know, we can't say Puerto Rican race statistics. We can't say Mexican statistics, but we can do something if we group you together. And look, no one had a crystal ball at the time. There was a sense that Latinos would continue to be a migrant population and that they might sort of increase. They had no idea we'd get to 2020 numbers. They had no idea we would become the largest minority, the majority in, in, in you know, several of the nation's largest metropolis areas, right? They yeah. had no idea. And so they're like, okay, we can group them all together and we'll label them something, right? And there were lots of debates on what they would be labeled. The Bureau really likes something called Spanish origin. So mm-hmm. if anyone ever remembers filling out, uh, you know, the census in 1980 and even in 1990, it was Spanish origin slash Hispanic, right? And there were lots of debates on what would be the proper label. But the idea for the Bureau was, okay, if we're going to give you data, we need to group it together. And you've got to think, if you were an activist, you know, an activist in Los Angeles at the time, and you would start to see Latino Mexican children significantly placed in second tier schools, segregated in this way, you're going to do anything you can to get the best possible data yeah. and show this, right? And so for them, that was like, okay, we'll compromise. We'll do this. We'll do this in this way, right? But what was unclear over time is just what Latino meant what Hispanic would mean, how big this group would be. Would it include Brazilians? Would it include Haitians? Would it include a third generation person born in the United States? Did they have to have a parent from outside? You know, there were so many, did they have to speak Spanish? In fact, one of the labels that was used and thrown around and thought of was, okay, are we Spanish speaking? And very quickly, when the Bureau sort of tested these different labels, they found they couldn't use Spanish speaking. Why? If you look in Los Angeles, if you look in the Southwest and the deep valleys of Texas, people had grown up generations being chastised, even kicked out of school for speaking (laughs) Spanish. Absolutely. And so when the government comes at you with a form and wants to know, do you speak Spanish? Even if the radio is blasting in Spanish, even if the TV is on in Spanish language, so many people would check no, no. And I think a lot of, a lot of, you know, the language issue is, is, is yes, there's a common thread, but not all of us speak Spanish. Uh, a lot of, there's a lot of indigenous languages, you know, also we have, a, we have them here. We have a large Guatemalan uh, indigenous population in the South. And, you know, this sort of leads us into the next discussion and we're going to have time to just sort of start this discussion and then we'll, we'll, we'll follow up after our break. But, you know, let's talk about the census. Let's talk about all the social factors and, the data that has gone into defining the Hispanic Latino identity. I know, obviously, we just finished a census count, and we did it under the most strenuous circumstances under, you know, COVID. 
Um, I know that right now the data is being delivered to all of the different, you know, to, to everyone. People are dissecting it. People are starting to talk about redistricting, redrawing lines. You know, the dilution of some of our communities is happening. I know a community that was that was spoken about today that was 80% Latino is now 40%. And now with the redistricting could potentially be even cut further in half. So it's 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 frightening to think about that. So let give me a little bit of uh, you know just to kind of start things off your thoughts around around these social factors. Yeah, I think sort of you know so data made it possible, but data can also shape the way we think about ourselves, and then data is used for politics, as yeah. you just showed us. Right, yeah. this is why data is so important in how you think. You know. It's not just a census bureau. What the census bureaus does is then copied by what the Department of Ed does, what the Department of Justice does, and then by, you know, small Los Angeles Department of, you know, it has these massive trickle down effects, right? right? And so it becomes really important to think and pause, well, what what is really being communicated here? And the way I think about sort of the impact that the census has on who Latinos have been is, is in three ways. One is the label. Right. Right. Many folks have asked, like, so why did we end up with Hispanic? Right. And what's interesting is that it wasn't clear. Some people tend to think, oh, it was the most favored term in the 1960s and the 1970s. But in fact, when the Bureau would go out in places like California and Arizona and Texas to sort of test the question and say, OK, well, now we have this other question. Are you Hispanic? Most people didn't know what the term even meant at all. They're like, I know I'm Puerto Rican. I'm not sure I'm Hispanic, right? right? And so in the 1970s and early 80s, the Bureau actually had to engage in a publicity campaign to popularize the term. They joined up at that point with Spanish language media, who was really eager to help them. And they created commercials. They created an all-day telethon where they would hold up uh, the, the census form with a big circle around the new Hispanic census and say, if you're listening to us, if you're Mexican, Puerto Rican, Cuban, whatever you are, yeah. you're Hispanic on the 1980 census. And so people forget that as yeah. we create these new categories, there's also this part of popularizing it. Absolutely. There were other terms. One important part of this fight, at least from activists and from a social justice perspective, is that the terms signify that we belong, that we are here, that we are not foreigners. So real, right away, that, that sort of knocked out some, some labels. So some yeah. people then said, well, we're not going to be Latin American because there's Latin America, <laughs> and it would suggest this foreigner, right? Right. Latin was sometimes uh, something that was used. You know, the way Spanish speaking wasn't going to work, there was another term that was often used, which is Spanish surname. Mm -hmm. Just think about it. If we still use Spanish surname, Vicente Fox, the former president of <laughs> right, Mexico, Mexico, would not have been Hispanic oh. on our own form. So no mm -hmm. term was perfect. Um, in fact, this gets at like what I think is another important part of the Bureau. Um, there were some activists that said really forcefully, let's have a brown category. You like to use color, you know, bureau uh, statisticians. Yeah. You say white, you say black. Why not call us brown? That will be more true to our experiences. But if you're a demographer, if you're a statistician, <laughs> yeah. 
you just absolutely know this is a non-starter. So just think about it. At the same time that they were thinking about what to do with the Latino category, they were also wrestling or debating with who were South Asians. Oh my God. You know, at some point they had yeah. South Asians as a quote, Hindu distinct racial category. At another time they had them as part of the white category. And so they just thought they're, you know, they're talking to each other like, oh my God, if we have this brown category, we're going to have it filled with South Asians, yeah. Filipinos that were becoming an important part of the population, and even some Native American groups, right? especially those that had no tribal affiliation, might say they're brown, and then the category would fall apart. Well, let's let's do this. There's, I mean, there's so much to unpack here, and, and this is really important. We're going to take a little bit of a break, and then we're going to come back and resume the conversation. Great. This podcast is brought to you by the Latino Community Foundation of Colorado, LCFC. Thank you for joining us today for the Our Story podcast, where Latino lived experience meets action. Mil gracias to Dr. Christina Mora. This series was made possible through the support of Colorado Housing and Finance Authority, Colorado Health Foundation, Molson Coors, and University of Colorado. Production credits to Emmy-winning producers Truce Media Collective. To learn more about the work of the Latino Community Foundation of Colorado, check us out on the web at latinocfc.org. And by helping us make transformational change through your financial support, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at latinocfc. This is the Latino Community Foundation of Colorado, our story series. Next up, episode four, Quienes Somos, part two. Where we continue to explore the origin of the terms Hispanic Latino and the role social factors and data play in defining our identity.